Content warning. The following message contains sensitive information that could be triggering to some of our listeners. You're listening to Beyond Timely Warnings. I'm Cecilia Aiden. And I'm Molly Wright. In the first episode of Beyond Timely Warnings, we discussed the pattern of sexual assault at UCSB. Today in episode two, we'll be diving into policies surrounding sexual assault at UCSB and how it affects the handling of survivors and perpetrators. We know that policy can be confusing and full of jargon. When we set out to record this episode, neither of us knew how sexual assault is supposed to be handled by the university or what a survivor's options are in terms of reporting. We're going to try our best to break down all things policy related and make it digestible as possible. You're listening to Beyond Timely Warnings. When talking about policy as it relates to sexual assault, the best place to start is the Cleary Act. The Cleary Act was first enacted by Congress in 1990, four years after Jean Cleary, a freshman in college, was raped and murdered in her dorm room. The Cleary Act is the reason that the campus community receives timely warnings when a crime has been committed on, around, or sometimes even off campus. This includes properties controlled by student organizations recognized by the university, like Greek Life. Crimes that fall under the Clery Act include murder, robbery, drug, alcohol, and weapon violations, hate crimes, and sex offenses like rape, incest, and fondling. In 2013, the Campus Save Act amended the Clery Act, requiring a broader definition of sexual violence that includes domestic violence, dating violence, stalking, and other crimes that disproportionately impact women. Under the Cleary Act, the identity of survivors must be protected by the university. The bottom line is that the Cleary Act requires all universities that receive federal funding, like financial aid, to be transparent about crimes, including sexual assault, that are committed in proximity to the campus in question. Let's go over some other specific policy-related definitions from the University of California's Sexual Assault Handbook, as this is the policy that UCSB has to adhere by. These definitions are helpful in understanding how sexual assault is handled by UCSB, and we feel it's important to include these in order to deepen the understanding of university policies and procedures. But we want to acknowledge that this is not an exhaustive list of definitions, and in no way should these definitions be used to try to limit a survivor's experience. Assault can mean very different things, and withholding consent can take many different forms, all of which are valid. First, the UC's definition of prohibited conduct. This umbrella term outlines what the university considers to be consent, sexual violence, sexual harassment, and some other behavior that violates guidelines. For the purposes of this episode, we will be focusing on sexual assault, which is defined here meticulously. Sexual assault is penetration or contact without affirmative consent. It does not matter whether the intimate body parts were clothed or not. If consent was not given before contact of the intimate body part, it can be considered sexual violence. Assault is further defined as, quote, overcoming the will of the complainant. 
According to the University of California, this is achieved by force, violence, menace, or threatening to injure, duress, also known as threatening to harm in many ways if the victim does not submit, as well as deliberately intoxicating the victim or taking advantage of a person's intoxicated or incapacitated state. It can also be considered sexual assault if one photographs, records, and or distributes images of a person without their consent. Consent must be affirmative, according to the university. This means that submissive behavior, such as, quote, lack of protest, lack of resistance, or silence do not alone constitute consent. Moreover, consent must be revocable and conscious. Another important aspect of consent to note is that the university specifically states that the accused cannot simply believe the survivor consented. It must be outright. This means that the accused cannot blame their own intoxication or lack of asking for sexual contact forthright. In addition, the UC does not accept that the accused thought the survivor consented if the survivor was clearly incapacitated past the point of drunkenness. These definitions may seem a bit open-ended, but the UC handbook contains a lot of other nuanced information and does note that not all contact of this sort is sexual violence. And that's where Title IX comes in. So what is Title IX? According to the U.S. Department of Education, Title IX amendments, quote, protect people from discrimination based on sex in education programs or activity that receive federal financial assistance. This includes sex-based harassment like sexual assault and other forms of sexual violence. The Title IX office at UCSB works to ensure the campus is free of sex discrimination, sexual harassment, and sexual violence. This is where someone could go if they chose to report a crime related to sexual assault. If a survivor has reported, the Title IX officer first determines their health and provides resources for their well-being. Then they begin the initial assessment of the case. During the initial assessment, the Title IX officer must determine if the report has any connection to the university. Interestingly, the handbook states that if there is not enough association between the conduct and the university, the case will be, quote, closed. A connection is defined as the case being associated with university property and whether the survivor or perpetrator were university members either during the assault or during the report. A connection to the university is only part of a list of criteria that needs to be met in order for a case to move forward from the initial assessment process. This criteria is known as DOE, or Department of Education Covered Conduct. It requires that the alleged conduct occurred in the U.S. on or after August 14, 2020, and alleges sex-based misconduct, which encompasses many of the definitions from the Clery Act. Along with this criteria, the formal report that a Title IX officer receives must be made in writing by a survivor, again, someone who must be connected with the university against an identified party. If part of this criteria isn't met, there is potential for case dismissal. But if dismissal is not required, the Title IX officer will open a DOE grievance process or an alternative resolution, a term coined by the University of California that's used when an investigation doesn't seem like it will lead to a resolution and when allegations are not as severe. Alternative resolutions include safety provisions, counseling, referrals to disciplinary action, and mediation, among other things. This option replaces a formal investigation which has the most capability of enforcing repercussions for sexual assault. The university emphasizes that while parties can put forth evidence, the university is ultimately responsible for presenting evidence and, quote, bears the burden of proof. The evidence collection process for a formal investigation includes interviews, but is pretty vague. 
For example, what exactly constitutes evidence in a sexual assault or rape case? What if no evidence is visible? What if the victim didn't get a rape kit done? There are a lot of unknowns when it comes to evidence for crimes that are usually committed without witnesses, especially if a survivor reports a few months after it occurred. To not get too far off into the weeds, the main point to note here is that the process of reporting a sexual assault or other related crime is complex and varies on a case-by-case basis. The Title IX officers ultimately have the responsibility and authority to decide how to respond following the handbook and making discretions based upon it, all of which directly influence the outcome of a case. So let's say the Title IX officer does find the allegations were true, or at least that there is a preponderance of evidence that, quote, prohibited conduct occurred. Once this is determined, the Title IX officer communicates with both parties about their preliminary determination or their solution. If both individuals agree on the decision, then the case moves forward to discipline. However, if one or more of the parties disagree with the officer's decision, it is sent to a, quote, fact-finding hearing. This can be thought of as an appeal of sorts. From there, the Office of Student Conduct determines the appropriate punishment, or what the university refers to as, quote, sanctions. Before researching all of this, Cecilia and I didn't even realize we had an Office of Student Conduct. They handle academic and behavioral violations of the Student Conduct Code. When it comes to sanctions, the policy emphasizes that sanctions are meant to, quote, hold a student accountable for violating university standards of conduct and to promote personal growth and development. I also want to note that I had to read through multiple policies and handbooks before finally finding a list of possible disciplinary measures. It was extremely difficult to find, and I mentioned that only to emphasize the lack of transparency and overall lack of knowledge the student body has when it comes to consequences for sexual violence. But I digress. The possible disciplinary measures include dismissal or suspension from the university, restrictions on certain university areas or activities, restitution, probation, and or a warning slash censure. Which option is chosen depends upon whether the perpetrator admits wrongdoing or remorse, the severity of the act, the intent, as well as wider context. Sexual assault, penetration, dating or domestic violence, and or stalking results in a minimum suspension of two calendar years. If it's sexual assault of strictly contact, that is no penetration, then the sanction is a minimum suspension of one calendar year. Sexual harassment has no minimum punishment and is based entirely on the factors we just mentioned. Something else to mention is that the minimum can be overridden if there are exceptional circumstances. So where does this leave victims and survivors? With a lot of options. If this episode has illustrated anything, it is that the process of reporting can be very complicated and take a toll on survivors. Reporting might not always be the best option for a survivor during their healing journey. So when we talk about reporting, I like to kind of characterize it. There's different forms of reporting. And and one of the most important pieces that we always want to convey is that it is never um, CARE's role to tell someone what they should or shouldn't do. There are a lot of valid reasons why someone would choose not to report. That's Brianna Connell, director of CARE, who spoke with KCSB regarding the reporting process for sexual assault. For those who don't know, CARE stands for Campus Advocacy, resources, and education. Understanding the limits to reporting is a really important aspect of the trends of sexual assault at UCSB. 
According to the SB Independent, oftentimes survivors will choose to not report either due to the difficulty of presenting evidence as well as for concern about consequences for the perpetrator. When alcohol is involved, it may also make a survivor's memories murky, further deterring them from reporting. The option to not to report is really putting that at the center so that survivors can have that personal choice. Uh, there is reporting structures through uh, the criminal justice system, which would be a, a law enforcement-based reporting. Um, and that usually determines is determined based on the location of where the incident occurred. There's campus-based reporting. And so that can be um, through what's called the campus's Title IX office, which is the investigative body on campus, um, as well as in a, oftentimes in a partnership with our student conduct office. Um, and the Student Conduct Office also offers other support services that aren't necessarily in the realm of reporting, but have safety. So a no contact order, a campus-based no contact order um, would be something that could help uh, someone feel safer, but not necessarily have to do a full investigation uh, process. Um, you can also report anonymously. So our university police department's website allows for um, anonymous reporting and, and a lot of survivors that choose anonymous reporting is likely because they have a, bar a barrier of one of the other reporting options. Maybe it's not a system that feels that's really safe and they don't have, there's not a lot of transparency. So trust in that system is really low, or maybe there's deep, you know, rooted um, fears of not being believed or being oppressed based on other intersecting identities that that the student may have, but that actually doesn't feel like that is a safe option or an option that would serve me well. Um, you know, I also think that there's uh, a myth that, you know, most survivors don't, they want to heal from what happened to them. They want to wish that what happened didn't happen, but not necessarily out for revenge or retribution. Um, and that justice and healing can look really different and can be really broadly defined um, and it's really each individual. So there can be, as far as barriers, some can be, you know, this doesn't feel safe or I'm not trusting or I'm not certain what I want to have happen next and I want to be able to make sure that I stay in control of, of my story and who gets access to that. Um, and then there's other types of reporting uh, civilly, so um, through the civil legal system uh, and getting restraining orders and things like that that are, aren't always necessarily an investigative, but they do have kind of that formal, a formal process element to them. The decision to report is ultimately a survivor's choice to make if they feel comfortable doing so. But the complexity of the reporting process is a reason why some survivors may choose not to report and instead seek alternatives. In our next episode, we'll discuss the different types of resources and organizations that survivors can turn to. Thank you for listening to Beyond Timely Warnings.